0: You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host Ankit Pondo, recording from Washington, D.C.,
1: and I'm your co-host Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland.
0: Good to be back with you, Katie. It's been a uh, it's been a while since we've done one of this uh, these episodes, but I have been on the road again. But it's good to be back in Washington. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. It's it's uh, finally warming up. Summer is is coming.
0: That that's right. And uh, I guess to try a segue here as as summer looms here so too is diplomacy picking up in the asian region uh that was, wasn't was the best segue but uh we have a lot going on this week uh in the region we have of course the g7 summit that's that sort of pulled most of the headlines uh as we record this podcast the summit hasn't concluded yet so for listeners we're going to save that one for uh probably the next episode but we'll talk a bit about the g7 and um how that's gone down in hiroshima and japan but Katie, we have another really interesting summit um, over on the other side of the region that we look at on this podcast, which is the meeting between Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, and the heads of state and government from around Central Asia uh, for the first ever China Central Asia Summit uh, in person. And... You wrote about this recently and and i think this is an interesting thing to talk about since it's a obviously it's it's a new format in this in-person manner it sort of gets at some of the previous themes we've talked about on this podcast regarding um chinese strategic objectives in central asia so before we kind of get into what happened at the summit uh, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this i mean how did this actually come to be and and how are we now at this place where she is personally meeting with these leaders Uh, for this new uh, type of summit mechanism? Where did this all come from?
1: So, you know, there are a couple other similar formats in which an external power uh, essentially gets the most diplomatic bang for its buck by meeting with all five Central Asian presidents or all five Central Asian foreign ministers at the same time. Um, From the external powers perspective, uh, like I said, it's more bang for the diplomatic buck. So when U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Um, He's not going to travel to all five Central Asian countries, but he can go to Kazakhstan and meet with all five Central Asian foreign ministers. Uh, The United States, for example, launched its, uh, they call it the C5 plus one back in 2015. And that's been a pretty consistent format. Uh, The United States didn't invent this format. However, I think Japan was the first to have a format like this. Their version of the C5 plus one goes back to 2004. Um, And I think that this method of meeting is reflective of of a, a external powers sort of viewing central asia as a region um and this has both positives and negatives I, I think the individual differences between the states get kind of lost when they're all approached together there are very big differences between kazakhstan and turkmenistan for example in terms of how they operate um and the kind of economic systems that they have but there's a lot of commonalities and so i think china as i i think The most surprising thing maybe is that it was only in 2020 that China started meeting with the Central Asian leaders like this. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been similar mechanisms. We have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We have the Collective Security Treaty Organization, um, which are larger organizations uh, and sort of have more history, but also critically include both China and Russia in them. Um, and so the Central Asian, there might be more Central Asian countries in the SEO, for example, than any other region that's part of the SEO. Uh, but but their interests sometimes get sort of subsumed under those of Russia and China. And so in particular, under Russia's sort of uh, umbrella. So this effort to meet just with the Central Asians is sort of a recognition that they don't need China, they don't need Russia in the room, or they don't need China in the room uh, in order for another power to engage with them.
0: Mm-hmm. And so. You know, this this uh, summit appears to have been infused with a lot of the old Silk Road mythology, right? It's taking place mm-hmm. in Xi'an mm-hmm. at the end of the historic uh, or the ancient Silk Road. Uh, Xi sort of analogized many of the contemporary linkages between China and, and various Central Asia sta- states. Um, is that is that just kind of dressing here or is there a deeper kind of significance uh, to what this tells us about China's strategic goal with sort of meeting these countries in this format?
1: Um, on 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 one hand, it is it is it is dressing. It is uh, a flowery depiction of the history, which is a, a lot more complicated. Um, Xi, for example, quotes a, a Tang Dynasty poet. Um, I think. Uh, not knowing or or not recognizing the irony in that uh, the the sort of western expansion of the chinese empire was halted in central asia under the tang dynasty in a, in a in a big battle in talas in 751 if anybody wants to look that one up so i thought that was kind of an interesting like you're bringing up history but the history is a lot more dirty and complex yeah but on the other hand you know the china and central asia have really emba- embraced the imagery of the silk road and so has every other external power that has tried to engage in Central Asia. For the power of that that metaphor, um, regardless of of how historically accurate or or not uh, it may be, uh, it is a powerful metaphor. And so 10 years ago, Xi Jinping, in a very momentous speech in Astana, uh, launched what we now call the Belt and Road Initiative. And so that was a major part of, of how China frames its engagement with Central Asia is through that Silk Road metaphor. Um, and it is very trade heavy. It is very uh, economic focused, but there are sort of additional issues that that have been lumped into to with that.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, m- moving on then to the actual summit itself uh, and and outcomes. Um, what what struck you as the most meaningful results here? Right, a lot of this, of course, is going to be a statement of principles and, and a statement of goals regarding you know, building strategic trust, so on and so forth. But but what was the meaningful um, outcome here?
1: I I mean, this was advertised as as sort of presenting a new blueprint for China-Central Asia relations. I don't really see the new blueprint, um, at least not in the declaration that was announced or in Xi's speech. Um, there were a lot of bilateral meetings, which I'm still working through, uh, analyzing, uh, but I think this was the most consistent and sort of clearest iteration of Chinese ambitions in Central Asia, its engagements, its commitments. Um, and I and I think I even wrote this in an article, um, which we can definitely link, uh, you know, one of the probably more important points, uh, certainly for those of us uh, thinking about the geopolitics of this, is that in the Declaration: The Xi'an De- Declaration. The Chinese side sort of states that it firmly supports the development path chosen by the Central Asian countries and supports all countries in safeguarding national independence, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and adopting various independent domestic and foreign policies. Now, those who have listened to me talk about Central Asia's foreign relations before will recognize the independent sovereignty, territorial integrity, um, which a, a U.S. diplomat once. Uh, told me was the the holy trinity of relations with Central Asia. Um, this pops up in most in most, uh, in most uh, agreements between Central Asia and an external power is this sort of mandatory recognition of their independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity. I think certainly right now some people might read that as a little bit of a dig at Russia, um, but I don't think that's how it's intended. Um, it is interesting that in none of the statements I've read so far, Ukraine has never once been mentioned. Russia has never once been mentioned. It's as if that that none of that is happening. But I, I think we all know that I'm sure they talked about Ukraine at some point, right? Like yeah. it seems insane that that never came up. Um, but it's not in any of the statements. So I think back to your sort of original question. What the sort of major takeaway is that clear image of of what China is presenting to Central Asia, which is exactly what it's asking for. Um, I think this does, however, sort of point us towards a future in which there is this continuing presence of China in Central Asia, and it's welcomed by Central Asian countries, and that does propose questions to Russia's legacy involvement in the region. Um, you know, Russia has extremely tight economic and political and social and cultural ties with Central Asia that are, that are not going to, like, fade overnight, um, but, but China's not going away either. Um, I think those thinking extremely long-term do you have the building blocks of conflict there but they're not really at odds at this juncture either so i I think it would be too early to say that that that's a friction point yeah i mean
0: it seems like the the mutual pull here probably going back to all the way back to like 2010 and the march west era in chinese foreign policy is that both central asia and china see advantages in you know respectively diversifying their prior uh you know not reliance but their prior economic interdependence with uh, various other countries right for central asia it's it's russia china presents the not the new opportunity but the opportunity that has more capitalization to be pursued And i think that's mm-hmm. some of what we've been seeing over the last 10-ish years and for china similarly uh, you know looking inward in asia looking westward has been a priority under xi especially so i think that trend appears to have you know appears to remain continues here obviously with new dynamics at play like ukraine like um, the concerns about Russia, but um, I think uh, you know you, you. I think you put it well in your article, right? I mean, this is not all about Russia. There are real interests that are driving these countries to um, meet in this in this format. Um, in terms of the the big divergences among the Central Asian states, you know, to kind of avoid amassing all of these you know countries into a single amorphous blob, what is the what strikes you as the most meaningful sort of divisions within the Central Asian states mm-hmm. when it comes to China right now?
1: so i'm I'm still working on on reading through all of the bilateral statements. Um, four of the five Central Asian leaders are also making state visits uh, attached to this. Uh, summit uh, the fifth. Uh, the president of Turkmenistan. He was, I think, the second foreign leader to make a state visit to China in the very first week of this year. So that's why he's not doing it now. Um, so there's a lot of material to get through, um, and I, I will be writing an article for the next magazine issue. This is a plug for that too, um, focused on those those internal differences. But just as a, I guess, I guess a teaser. You know, there there's a lot in common um, when we look at at the bilateral joint. Uh, statements that are that I've I've gone through. There's sort of the same common themes show up in every single one. All of them, I believe, reference the One China Principle, for example, and and specifically mention Taiwan. Um, all of them focus on this on the Belt and Road, um, sort of including sort of the power of the Belt and Road and economic relations. Where there are divergences, um, you know, you have I think. Kazakhstan is essentially first among equals when it comes to relations with China. Uh, The next, so part of this summit has been institutionalizing this summit. So they plan on holding these every two years, rotating it between China and one of the Central Asian states. Kazakhstan is next in 2025. Um, The Kazakh president opened uh, Kazakhstan's third consulate, I believe, in Xi'an during this trip. There was an investment forum, a bunch of other things. so I think Kazakhstan has the deepest relations with China on, on one hand, and those are very much built on, on economics, um, but also again, that that sort of origin of the Belt and Road. Um, when we look at the number of agreements signed, I think Uzbekistan signed the most. Um, and I, I, I think the reason for that is Uzbekistan is playing catch up to Kazakhstan on these things. It wasn't really until 2016 when Islam Karimov died that Uzbekistan really started Trying to engage with China in in a a, a sort of concrete fashion. Uh, Karimov was a bit of a, an isolationist at the end. Um, so I think Uzbekistan's sort of catching up on, on Kazakhstan and those things. Uh, and then the other interesting thing that a really good analyst named uh, Neva Yao, who has uh, written for us a number of times, um, she's at the OSCE Academy in Bishkek, she pointed out that Kyrgyzstan was the only country in its um bilateral sort of joint statement uh to Really go hard on Xinjiang uh, and sort of helping China with the Xinjiang problem, um, and uh, I thought it's, it's interesting that that wasn't in the Kazakh statement. And then the only other thing that I think I've picked up so far um, that may be worth mentioning is uh, while the joint declaration from all all six leaders included sort of a sort I would say preferred Chinese statement about. Uh, sort of combating or forestalling color revolutions. Uh, I only found a reference to it in the Kazakhstan bilateral statement, which I thought was interesting. Um, and yeah, so there, there's there's a lot to parse through. I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading uh, today so that I can uh, figure out what went on. But I think the overarching um, theme is that that China approaches Central Asia much like other countries approach Central Asia as a region, it does have specific interests in specific countries. Uh, energy is a bigger theme with Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan for obvious reasons, um, and is less of a theme with Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan for obvious reasons. And so, you know, I I, I don't see anything terribly surprising in that, um, but I, I think maybe the the takeaway is that you know these entities plan on. Investing further in this relationship that, that they're building um, and and that that has implications for I think more for the West than it does for Russia um, Because I think sort of the end Point of sort of Chinese style modernization and Chinese style development which are referenced in these uh, is more sympathetic to Russia than say liberal democracies
0: Absolutely um- OK, before we before we close out today's discussion, I thought it'd be interesting to reflect a little bit on a totally different theme. But it was something we obviously talked about a lot on this podcast uh, during the last American presidency. But, you know, the the topic here is the link between U.S. domestic politics and geopolitics in Asia. So U.S. President Joe Biden, he's currently uh, in Japan for the G7 meeting, but he had to cut a much longer trip to Asia short uh, to make that happen because he's got to be back in Washington to negotiate with uh, House Republicans on raising the U.S. debt limit so that the United States government does not default on its financial obligations. Uh, That choice led to the cancellation of an in-person Quad Leaders meeting in Australia uh, and what would have been the first ever uh, state visit by President of the United States to Papua New Guinea. And uh, we've been here before. This happened in October 2013 when President Obama had to cancel a similar trip to Asia Uh, to deal with a government shutdown at the time. Um, So it isn't necessarily a new problem. But there's been a lot of commentary about this, that you know this sort of shows that the United States is fundamentally um, incapable of making good on many of these priorities, given the troubles of domestic politics. Also, Biden's choice to prioritize the G7, which is a global organization, an organization primarily led by... um, western european well led by countries in the transatlantic context granted it is taking place in japan uh, shows that when the administration says that the indo-pacific is the priority theater that's perhaps not the case given the decision to cancel the quad summit and the papua new guinea visit over the g7 now some of that you know strikes me as a little bit overblown because i think the g7 does have substantial importance for the united states in ways that do have relevance in the region itself um, but I'm wondering, you know, what your take on all this is. What is what is Biden canceling this really tell us about how this administration or the United States more broadly uh, is thinking about Asia?
1: I mean, I, I, I think it would be a lot worse for Asia if the United States defaulted on its debts. I, I think that that is something that needs to be forestalled. Uh, and so while I can see where these criticisms come from. I, it doesn't seem totally genuine, uh, and and I would say that because a lot of this the airing of these criticisms comes from Westerners. Um, you know, I don't hear Australian commenters, for example, um, sort of decrying Biden turning away from Asia uh, by can by by sort of by default canceling this Quad summit. I think there's an understanding certainly in uh, the other. Uh, democratic countries in Asia that also have leaders and domestic problems that sometimes upset their foreign policy goals, Um, that it's sort of, they're not happy about it, but also they get it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if anyone maybe has the right to kind of be frustrated with this, it's Papua New Guinea. This would have been their very first uh, U.S. president visiting. Um, This does, I think, I don't, I think setback is too harsh of a term, but it does sort of stem progress in sort of Oceania and in the South Pacific for the United States. That's sort of an area that the U.S. has tried to be a little bit more active in. Um, But I think this is not the first time that something in in Oceania or or the South Pacific gets taken off the schedule because of other things. And so if that happens again and again and again, um, you get the message that said. Like I, my first comment, I, I think it would be much worse uh, if the United States defaulted. Um, that would be much worse for the global economy than than anything. And and maybe this sort of goes back to U.S. domestic politics. And there's a criticism here of of the forces in the United States that are kind of forcing this.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, no, Papua New Guinea. Uh, you know, they've been planning for this for six months. They'd invested a substantial amount. I think they were going to declare uh, Monday a public holiday. And, and this was yeah, maybe
1: all maybe maybe the U.S. owes them a cancellation fee. You know, like when you well, you go to a fancy restaurant, you don't show up. Like well, uh, maybe there should be a cancellation fee.
0: Yeah. Well, this was all also you know Biden would have been there for just a few hours on his mm-hmm. uh, way to Australia from Hiroshima. But uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think you know this fundamentally, I guess the problem here is the turbulence domestically for the United States. Uh, does cause problems overseas. And mm-hmm. that's just that's just something that's been unavoidable now for a number of years. Like I said, going all the way back to October 2013 when Obama had to skip the uh, ASEAN summits that year to deal with the government shutdown. Um, so it's not a new issue. And I think one of the advantages perhaps of the US having been in this position now for as long as it has is that people are less surprised when these, these kinds of events happen. I remember back in 2013 when Obama canceled that mm-hmm. trip, there was a lot more, I think, what, There's a lot more uh, sort of hue and cry from the region about that.
1: Oh, yeah. The the pivot was dead. Um, The United States is never paying attention to Asia again. And none of that has really come to fruition. Right. Exactly. Uh, I I think it was definitely a little overhyped. Um, and I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, the source of that overhypeness, you know, was that was a domestic audience talking to a domestic audience about a domestic issue, but framing it as a foreign policy issue. Yeah, and I think uh, you're right. Though. This so... is one of
0: those things that the chattering classes, he says on a podcast, uh, tend to <laughs> uh, uh, concern themselves more with than uh I think, I think realistically is warranted, but, you know, just wanted to reflect on that briefly, but uh, you know, we'll be back soon to, to talk a bit more about, about the G seven and about regional issues, but uh, I think let's leave it there for now.
1: It was uh, great as always to get to talk about Central Asia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Always, always a pleasure to hear your insights. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Katie. And for our listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes and if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that anywhere you get your podcast, and we really do appreciate that. And finally, if you have suggestions for Katie and I on what you'd like to hear on future episodes, please uh, do reach out. We're always happy to take that into consideration. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.